Every search you make, every click you take, they'll be watching you. Tired of companies like Google and Facebook watching everything you do online? There's actually a simple solution. DuckDuckGo. It's an all-in-one privacy app with a built-in private search engine, web browser, one-click data clearing, email protection, and more. All for free. Download the app today and get the most comprehensive privacy protection with the push of a button. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. Hello, everyone. This is Rosie Tran, and welcome to Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weibo.tv special report sponsored by our friends at DuckDuckGo. You may have heard my voice at the end of every episode on Weibo.tv. I'm the one asking you to leave a review. Which, by the way, I hope you've done, right? You've left us a review? Okay, great. Unless you're lying. <clears throat> well, I'm a lot more than a voice. I'm also Weibo.tv's intrepid reporter, and over the course of this miniseries, I'm going to share with you short, actionable tips you can use to protect your privacy. These tips were sourced by our fearless leader, he really hates when we call him that, BJ Mendelson. BJ, for those of you who may not know, is the author of the book Privacy and How We Get It Back, a book that was published in the before times. This means before COVID. BJ is currently writing a sequel called How to Protect Yourself from Fascists and Weirdos. So everything we're going to hear in this miniseries is the most up-to-date information he's researched, bringing us into 2023 and beyond. Throughout the series, you're also going to hear from some special guests and experts in the information security field. You hear that sound? That means it's time for today's privacy tip. Hello, everyone. This is Amanda King, co-author of How to Protect Yourself from Fascists and Weirdos. Stupid Sexy Privacy is taking a short break and we'll return with new episodes on Thursday, May 4th. When we come back, we'll share our final four episodes, which feature interviews with Nina Jankowitz, Dr. John Gartner, Bob Hoffman, and Corey Doctorow. Nina Jankowitz was the former executive director of the Disinformation Governance Board of the United States. Dr. John Gartner is a psychologist, therapist, and founder of the organization Duty to Warn. He was also previously a professor at John Hopkins University Medical School. Bob Hoffman is a former advertising executive who recently spoke at the European Parliament on how Google and Facebook help fund and recruit extremists on their platforms. And last but not least, Cory Doctorow is the co-author of Chokepoint Capitalism, in addition to many, many other books, as well as a former editor at Boing Boing and a digital activist. So we have a lot in store for you over our last four episodes, but this week we want to share with you a bonus episode. Initially, we were hoping to cover how programs like ChatGPT can be used to spread disinformation and how to spot it. But the deeper we went into the research, we found that covering this issue would require a whole new season of the of this podcast to properly do so. That's a little outside our budget at the moment. So for now, we're going to share with you an interview with Professor Uri Gall. Uri is a professor of business information systems at the University of Sydney here in Australia. I had a chance to speak with Uri about a lot of the ethical concerns surrounding large language models and how they can be abused by bad actors. This is an excellent follow-up to a previous episode where 
where we pointed out these large language models are being trained on sensitive and in some cases stolen private medical files of patients that have been leaked onto the internet or in some cases shared through data brokers and other bad actors. For those of you interested in how AI is being used by fascists and weirdos, we'll be covering this topic extensively in the upcoming book. For now, we hope you enjoy my interview with Ari and we'll see you on Thursday, May 4th for our final four episodes. Thank you for joining us. Um, I have with us today Ari Gall, a professor of business information systems at University of Sydney. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, professor, if you could give everyone a brief introduction to what you do, what your background is, that would be fantastic. I'm a professor of business information systems, which basically means that I look into the way in which digital technologies are used by organizations. And I'm particularly interested in, in looking at the social and ethical consequences that new technologies have. My background might help to explain this interest of mine. I actually have an undergrad in sociology and anthropology. So I'm not really a, a technologist per se or an engineer. And I have a master's in organizational psychology. And I, even my PhD, I studied in organizational behavior. So my, my keen interest is really in understanding human and social processes as they relate to new technologies. No, that, that's really interesting. And, and I feel like it's a bit ahead of the curve as well, right? Because it's really only now that, uh, or recently, that ethics has kind of been coming into the conversation of technology in terms of at what point is it still ethical to do this thing. And I feel like nothing is really exemplifies that anymore than the recent surge in AI and chat GPT. And I know you've written some articles on that, but take us through a bit kind of, of large language models and, and why this is such kind of an ethical conundrum at the moment. So large language models are based on huge amounts of data as the name suggests they're large. And, um, AI traditionally has been trained on data sets that that in itself is not a new a new concept. Um, many times these data sets were specifically designed for unique purposes uh, and data was collected from narrower sources, let's say. With the advent of the internet uh, and specifically with the proliferation of social media, which both of them have contributed to an explosion of information. Um, much of it, much of it is, is very easily accessible by anybody. Really, um, we've seen the expansion of very large data sets that, that are used by various types of, of models, um, not just lar large language models necessarily. Um, and um, like like you indicated, this brings with it various ethical issues, specifically around privacy, where the data is gathered from, um, what kind of information it reveals about the people that post data, that generate this data, um, whether or not they're compensated for the use of these data in training data sets, and, and a variety of other ethical issues that I, I imagine we'll get into. Yeah, absolutely. Now, with ChatGPT and large language models, do we know what data from the internet that they're using or what the kind of most likely sources where their data is? Do we have that information yet? We have general information that um, companies like OpenAI, which is the company behind ChatGPT, um, released to the public. Um, so I believe that the number that they provided was, was 300 billion characters um, that, the data, that the model was, was trained on. By the way, overnight, I received an email from OpenAI that they're releasing ChatGPT4 
which based on, on what I've heard is trained on even a larger data set. I, I don't know what the number would be there. But yeah, so we're talking about massive amounts of information that are basically harvested, harvested from all over the internet. Right. So you would have to assume then that anything you write and publish online or anything from your social medias could effectively be used to inform us. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it would include things like blog posts and reviews that people write on restaurants or hotels or what have you. Um, Twitter posts. If, if you remember, Elon Musk was one of the original investors in, in OpenAI. We do know that OpenAI had access to Twitter data up until, I believe, December of 2022, um, where Musk decided to stop access um, to Twitter data. But up until that point, OpenAI and ChatGPT had access to Twitter data. So it's just an example of another source of data that they would use to train the model on. Yeah. Now, is there any way at the moment to opt out of this? Nope. To the extent that um, you're on the internet and you're an active participant in in the internet, you know, if you have a Facebook account or if you're um, involved in any other social media platform or if you write any type of text anywhere on the internet, you need to take into consideration that it might be consumed by chat GPT and other language models for that matter, right? They're not the only player in the market. Yeah. If you were someone who wanted to be kind of a bit more privacy aware on the internet, how do you how would you reconcile large language models and their training data sets like what kind of mindset would you need to have with that is it kind of like you said where it's just once you publish something on the internet you have to acknowledge that it may be part of that data set or is there another angle that you could potentially take one angle that one could take is just to be careful with the kind of information that they post online um which i know is not particularly helpful because people use various websites and social media platforms for a variety of purposes. Many of them tend to be for personal purposes, interacting with family members and, and things along those lines. But I, I think as a basic principle, it, it's always better to err on the side of caution. And if you don't need to write something, don't write it. And we have other types of um, generative AI applications that are based on images, right? So uh, along the same uh, notion, I would say don't post photos that you don't have to post because we don't know how they might be used to generate, um, but to train what, what sort of um, generative AI um, applications like DALI or Midjourney um, and others that, that are probably coming. So that's that's one thing that I, that I would say. Um, secondly, I, I think probably the most reasonable way to deal with this is through regulation and legislation which is not really directly in the hand of individual consumers, in the hands of individual consumers, but that's something that, that should be coming because I think it's, it's another example of where technological advancements move way faster than, than the legal frameworks that are meant to, um, to enforce how they're being used across society, which, which is another really important thing to keep in mind, right? Which is the scale of these things. This is not something that's... Uh, you know, ChatGPT and other large language models sit somewhere in between narrow AI, what people call narrow AI, which are applications that are um, quite specific to achieving a, a you know a unique task like playing chess or chess or playing Go or things like that, and and AGI, artificial general intelligence, which is meant meant to be a kind of a, a do it all 
AI machine that doesn't really exist yet. And many people doubt that it ever will exist, but that's, I guess that's a different conversation. So it's, it's somewhere in between that. Um, And, and we need to keep in mind how quickly these models have become so popular all over the world. Um, I believe it's the fastest growing consumer product ever, ever released. Right. I forget this uh, this specific time frame, but it took them a couple of weeks to go from one to from zero to million users. Yeah. The scale here is is a real presents a real ethical challenge as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and two questions off kind of the back of that. Um, the first one, just jumping off of that growth in particular, with your background and your knowledge around kind of. AI and, and information systems and things like that. Why do you why do you think it got so popular so fast? What's your working hypothesis? I'm a Facebook hipster. I then deleted my Facebook account and then re-upped it in 2005 and have not been able to get off the stupid thing since. So So why can't you get off? So what, what are your <laughs> You guys. (laughs) The award-winning Smashing Security Podcast, hosted by Graham Cluley and Carol Terrio each week, it takes an irreverent look at cybersecurity and online privacy, helping you find out what's happening with your data. Find it in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps, or at smashingsecurity.com. It's not all filth. I think this technology, and again, we're not just talking about ChatGPT. It's also the the image generating AI uh, machines and and other um, lar- large lang- language models that are being rolled out now. I think they do present uh, a novel functionality that's kind of fun to play around with. If um, if you leave aside for a minute all the the possible risks that it presents to people and to society at large, which I think are real and and severe, yeah. <laughs> but leaving that aside for a minute, I think it's it's pretty cool to interact with a uh, an interface that can write back things to you based on, on simple prompts and generate extremely p- plausible text, high level plausible text, in in ways that seem to be specifically tailored for your requests. So there's something there that's captivating, that's kind of alluring. Yeah. Um, it's a new shiny toy. I think the novelty is, uh, you know, one big aspect of why so many people are excited about this and hopefully it will wear out soon. Hopefully, hopefully. Um, yeah. What are those ethical risks? What is, What is that risk there? Because there are a couple of different levels of it. Can you break it down for us what those what those are? Yeah, so one, one of the risks is something that we started talking about before, which is the privacy aspect. And within the privacy aspect, there are very various branches to that. So there's the issue of where the data comes from and whether anybody was asked for the data to be used to train the model. And the answer is no, no one was asked. And we need to keep in mind that, that OpenAI is a for-profit business. It used not to be, but now it is. At least part of it is a for-profit business. I think they still have a research lab um, adjacent to the main business, but the main business is for-profit. And they have uh, access to this massive raw resource, which is our data, 
that they pay nothing for or close to nothing if we kind of think about the infrastructural effort involved in, in scraping the data. But I, I don't know many other companies that are able to have access to the raw resource without which they have nothing to offer really for free. Yeah, so there's, there's that element of it. And then another privacy aspect is that anything that we put in our prompts when we interact with ChatGPT or ChatGPT4, I guess, which is coming out now, can be used by the can be used by OpenAI and, and become part of the training, um, the training data for, for the model, which may sound innocuous, but it's not really when you consider the kind of information that people might be putting into the prompts. One of the things that people use ChatGPT for is um, to edit documents. And documents can have can contain all sorts of information about private affairs in addition to other things. But to the extent that there's private information in these documents, then it might be consumed by, by ChatGPT um, and become part of the public domain when other people prompt it to generate whatever text they're interested in. So we need to consider that everything that we put in there um, might be used for other purposes in the future. No, for sure. What I was going to follow on about and ask a question on with the privacy stuff was one thing that you speak about um, kind of in the articles that you released in the last couple of months is GDPR and the privacy policy and the lack of clarity and visibility around that. Given that this is a very fast-moving space at the moment, what kind of response or change, if any, have you seen in the privacy policy or the language within it or the conversations around GDPR with relation to large language models and all of that? Let me preface my response by saying that I'm not a legal expert. Yeah, absolutely. What I, what I know is just based on my own observations. And uh, my observations have um, indicated that nothing has changed. Um, but I, I, I think this is not for a lack of concern. I think it's because the, the pace of the legal um, process is much slower than the pace of technological development. I think people are aware this presents a new challenge. But even with the GDPR, as it stands currently, um, there are real questions about whether language models like ChatGPT are compliant with it. And um, so, for instance, there's a stipulation in, in um, GDPR regarding the right to be forgotten, which means that you can ask, for instance, if you, for whatever reason, have a, there's a website out there that, that mentions your name in a negative, con in a negative context, and this page is indexed by Google, um, you have a right to ask Google to de-index de that, that page. And it's not clear how, how um, a lar large language model like ChatGPT allows for something like this to happen. So there are, there are real debates happening um, in, in Europe, and I imagine elsewhere as well, about the, the legal aspects of, of these new technologies. Yeah, and this is this is a very big question. And if you don't have an answer, that is entirely fine. From your perspective, is there a way that large language models and privacy can actually coexist? And you can have something like ChatGPT that actually does 
strike that balance and find a way to still respect people's privacy and have that kind of, or are they entirely incompatible? That's a very good question. Given the sheer amounts of data that are required to train these language models to the point that they become as, I don't want to say reliable because they're highly unreliable, as convincing as they are, such that they have the capacity to produce text text that seems probable. I I don't I, I don't have a a good idea as to what would be a good alternative to the internet as a whole, as a source for this data. Um, and maybe I'm missing something there, but I, if if I am, I'm not sure what that is. And if I'm correct, and there's no other alternative to the internet then I think we need to have a, as a society, a sincere conversation about what is the nature of the data that's, that sits on the internet. And of course, this is a very overgeneralized statement because there are different types of data that, that reside on the internet as it were. And some of them are, I guess, more public in nature than others. And some of them were written with the intention of becoming as public as possible, in fact, right, to become viral. But not everything is like that. But even if something was written to become as public as possible, that doesn't mean that whoever wrote that piece of text necessarily consents to it to being used in, in, in this other way. And for this use to be financially profitable for another entity, right? That's, that's a different proposition there. So I don't know that there's a necessary clash between large language models and, and privacy, but if there isn't, I'm not sure, I'm not sure exactly how to resolve it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a big question. It's yeah. um, kind of, uh, you know, the chicken and egg problem to a certain extent. Um, but in terms of privacy, particularly in the United States, one of the big concerns is reproductive health information. And I know that's something that you touched on as well. Um, do you see kind of an intersection at all between privacy around reproductive health and chat GPT further than the sense that it could be information that's pulled into the training data? Are there other crossover points that people should be aware of with this? Chat GPT does have a tendency of providing information to prompts that can include information about people. Um, and the information that it provides can contain actual details about individuals and their lives in ways that are completely unpredictable to the user or to anybody else for that matter. So it may be correct, it may be incorrect, it may be partly correct, it may be misleading, and there's no way to ascertain what, what the quality of the data is. I was going to make another point. Oh, um, when we think about the medical aspect or health-related aspects of, of large language models and these interactive text-based applications like ChatGPT, I think... There are real concerns there that largely emanate for from the, the tendency of these technologies to hallucinate, right? People refer to this as AI hallucinations, which is the tendency that they have to produce 
seemingly plausible but manifestly incorrect information. And I would be highly surprised if no one uses ChatGPT and other similar interfaces to ask medical questions. Like, what do these symptoms mean? What do I need to do if, I feel, if I'm feeling that after I've done this or whatever it is? And again, think about the scale, which we talked about before. When you extrapolate this across the whole population, I mean, how many lives are going to be lost because of this? Yeah. And I don't know. Can you maybe give a quick refresher for people who know about ChatGPT but don't necessarily understand how it works? Because it doesn't necessarily work in the way that you expect it to. Because at least from my understanding, there's there's not a filter for, is this true, right? It's just kind of a pattern matching thing, right? This is Rosie Tran from Rosie and BJ Save the World, a podcast asking big questions and discussing how to solve these big issues. This is a podcast for people just like you who ask, has the war on drugs been successful? Do we need universal basic income? Should we legalize sex work? Go to rosieandbjsavetheworld.com to get more confused. For the most part, yes. It just consumes data from the internet and whatever was written on the internet can be given back to the user. My understanding is that they did use another layer of reinforcement learning done by humans. And I'm not sure if you've heard about the critiques that were written about this, the the people that they used to do that. I believe we're based in, I want to say Kenya, or maybe another African country, but I think it was Kenya. And I think they got paid like $2 an hour or something. Um, and their job was to examine the the output produced by ChatGPT and, and confirm whether it was reasonable and, and reliable. But given the sheer volume of, of data that flows through the system, I... And, and clearly, given the the amount of um, incorrect information that we know the the system produces, that they can't cache everything. And I've read somewhere that up to twenty percent of the output of ChatGPT is is complete bullshit. Yeah. Okay. That that's quite a bit. So not only In fact, can I sh- can I share something yeah. with you? So the the article that I published on ChatGPT has an example. It has a screenshot of a at the beginning of a book that was generated by by the system to demonstrate how it, it can use copyrighted material. And the book that I have there is Catch-22. But before I had Catch-22, so the original version, <clears throat> the original version of the article contained the first few passages, or so I thought, from the book The True History of the Kelly Gang by Peter Carey, who's an Australian author. Mm-hmm. And I just prompted chat GPT to give me the first few passages from the book, which it happily did. And I put it in the article. And after the article got published, literally within hours, less than a day, I get an email from Peter Carey <laughs> um, saying, this is not my book. Um, I'm not sure who wrote this, but this is not something I would ever write. And um, so obviously we very quickly took it down and replaced it with um, an actual excerpt from a different book. But the point that I want to make here is that, you know, the the system would very confidently produce manifestly wrong information. And there's no way to, I mean, in this case, there was a way to validate the information because I could actually look at the book and open it and 
do my homework, which I didn't do. Um, and I apologize, but that's what happened. So like I said, it's not a very flattering story. <laughs> it's not a very flattering story, maybe, but it is quite illustrative, right, of how easy it is to be convinced that incorrect data is correct because ChatGPT and other large language models do it in such a way that is very convincing because it follows our natural writing patterns, right? Yes. And, and this is a link to another ethical concern, a really significant ethical concern around the use of these, of these language models, which is their capacity to, to write convincing and yet crappy, incorrect information at scale very cheaply in, in a way that can be very simply weaponized for all sorts of purposes uh, you know, with the use of, in, in order to spread misinformation. And today we have not just the ability to generate text extremely quickly, but also to, to generate extreme high quality um, deep fakes of people's faces. And when you combine these two things together and, and they can be combined together, the, the consequence can be scary, right? You can get anybody to say anything and post it anywhere. And most, I, I would, I would think most unsuspecting observers or consumers of that would buy into it because it looks like the real person saying real things. No, absolutely. And along those lines, one of the things that you've mentioned, right, is the, the best way to kind of properly manage this is probably legislation. And we know legislation moves quite slowly. Um, what in your brain could trigger legislation moving more quickly or this regulation or understanding in the legal world about what's happening to go a bit, to come a bit quicker, a bit sooner? In the U.S., I've, and I've heard people talk about this, uh, an important date is 2024 because you have an election coming up. And we've all experienced the last election and realized how, what a slippery slope it can be and how things that we used to take for granted, uh, we shouldn't take for granted anymore around having a, a reliable and um, for the most part, problem-free um, process. And that was without chat GPT and, and deep fakes that were widely and commercially available. And I know that people have a sense of urgency around this because there's a real concern that with these two technologies combined together, um, it's going to be extremely difficult to, um, to ensure that the next election is actually going to go through properly. I, I don't know if this sense of urgency is going to translate into policy and, and legal work before, but I, I, I really hope that something happens because otherwise, God help us. Yeah, no, fair enough. That that was a point that completely like passed me by there. Um, but no, very true. 2024 with deep fakes and large language models and the kind of uh, behavioral targeting that you can still do on a lot of social media platforms would be hectic. Um, so In fact, I heard I heard some uh, yesterday. I listened to um another podcast and someone mentioned their uh, deep fake that was done with Biden. And apparently in that video, he claimed that he would, uh, he would, um, recruit, 
um, into the army, everybody between the ages of 20 and 22. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's just a little teaser of what, you know, yeah, what might be coming in our direction. And, and again, kind of pulling on your, you know, your education and your, your degrees, um, the average person, right. Until there is legislation, until there is the, the proper regulation of the training data or whatever it may be. Are there any particular hallmarks or that kind of uncanny valley sense that we can look out for to understand whether or not something may be uh, generated by a large language model or is it is it really that kind of seamless at this point i would even before the emergence of these large language models we we have had problems with misinformation and disinformation before and my recommendation is for people to always look at the source of the information but i guess the source can be forged as well pretty easily and therefore it's also important to cross-reference and look for multiple sources and try to triangulate that way. And at any rate, always be cautious with, with, with what you're getting exposed to on the internet. I guess as an individual user of, of ChatGPT, like we said before, I don't know that there's much that can be done about whether or not they can access the information that you put on the internet. But one thing that you can control is what information you provide to them in your prompts. So. If you can help it at all, don't provide personal information about you, your family, your hobbies, your preferences, your love life or, um, you know, health status or whatever. Be very cautious with, with the information that you, uh, that you put in there. Yeah. And is, has there anything that we haven't talked about or you haven't had really much of a chance to talk about in other articles that you feel like is important or um, necessary or critical for people to understand or keep in mind or interesting to know anything, anything along those lines. I can't think of anything in particular. No, that's fine. I mean, we could have a, we could have a slightly more, um, philosophical debate about the importance of privacy. Mm -hmm. Many people tend to think that I have nothing to hide. So why should I care if they use my, my data? And that always strike me as a, as a bizarre and somewhat naive statement. And that's, that's because even if you have nothing to hide today, whatever you think is innocuous today might come back and bite you in the ass tomorrow because things might be different. Your country might be un under a different kind of government. Legislation might be different. Social norms might be different. And, and so even if something appears to be inconsequential today, it might not be that in the future. And also we need to keep in mind that there's a whole economy, there's an entire infrastructure, global infrastructure of, of data brokers, thousands of different companies of different sizes, different stripes, different colors, different flavors, but what they do, what, what their business model is, is to get their hands on, on as much data as they possibly can. In some cases, analyze the data, provide some insights and, and sell it to, to other companies and they're for the most part, have no regard for people's privacy. So even if you're posting something, something that might appear completely innocent in one context, keep in mind that it might be used uh, for all sorts of purposes in very different contexts, which we completely hadn't considered. 
So I, I, I would urge people to be more cautious about the kind of information that they, that they um, spread behind them. No, fair enough. It, it, is, yeah. it is one of those things where we are very in the moment focused with what we're sharing and what we're saying, not necessarily considering that everything could change tomorrow, potentially. Yeah, and I, I think we still lack awareness around that. And I think many people still prefer having personalized services online because of the data that they provide um, at the expense of their privacy. And I think it's concerning. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It was lovely chatting with you. And if people wanted to find um, further information or further articles about things that you've written and published about this, what would be the best way to, to find it? The best way is to Google my name. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, well, thank you again and have a, have a lovely day. Most things people hate about the internet comes from a lack of privacy, like those creepy ads that make you think your phone is listening to you. DuckDuckGo is an all-in-one privacy app that can help you with that. It's your internet browser with private search, tracking blocker, encryption, and even built-in email protection, all for free. Just go to DuckDuckGo.com to learn more. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified. Thank you for listening to Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weibo.tv special report. I'm your host, Rosie Tran. Today's episode was written by BJ Mendelson, produced by Andrew Van Voris, and sponsored by DuckDuckGo. Due to the overwhelming demand for privacy audits, we want to make a quick announcement before we go. Doing one-on-one privacy audits is super time-consuming. This means BJ has less time to write these episodes and the new book, How to Protect Yourself from Fascists and Weirdos. So, along with his co-author, Amanda King, BJ is currently putting together an online course called Stupid Sexy Privacy, which you'll be able to purchase here at stupidsexyprivacy.com. The course will walk you through every privacy tactic discussed in today's episode in greater detail. If you'd like to know when the course becomes available, you can email bj at bjmendelson at duck.com. The email address again is bjmendelson at duck.com. And we'll see you next time, right? <laughs>